Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Drumforge. Drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike. Founded on the idea that great drum sounds should be obtainable for everyone, we focus on your originality. Drumforge, it's your sound. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. Hey everybody, welcome to the Joey Sturges Forum Podcast. Hello. And how you doing? Not bad, not bad. Great today. Yeah. Today we have a cool guest, Sterling Winfield. Is that how you say that? That's how you say it. And wow, I'm cool. Tell my wife. <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, cool. And uh, the more I read about you, the cooler you get, actually. Oh, hell. Thanks, man. Because uh, Sterling um, has worked on a bunch of stuff that I grew up listening to. Like uh, I didn't realize you had worked on that uh, that Merciful Fate stuff from way back when, but like that was some of my formative stuff. Right on. Yeah, they were the first metal show I ever went to. Awesome. Yeah, so like you're uh, partly responsible. Hey, man, I've corrupted many of youth of America. <laughs> also, uh, in these credits here, Pantera. Hell yeah. Yeah, that's my shit, dude. Pantera, fuck yes. <laughs> Pantera, I think Pantera, is sick. we can safely say, is everybody's shit. That's that's the top of the marquee for me, man, honestly. You know, the Damage stuff. Plan as well, which is awesome. Yep, um, yep. Hell yeah. And King Diamond as well, which is very cool. Yeah, the yeah. Merciful Fate stuff kind of bled over into King Diamond and ended up doing a couple things with him as well. And you're Absolutely. you're in Texas, and I know that he's not American, but he lives in Texas, right? Yeah, he lives right up the road here from me, probably about 20 minutes. How did—where's he from? Is he from Denmark? He's from Denmark, yeah, he's That's from Copenhagen. How did he end up in Texas? That seems like a strange— uh... He married a girl from here. Uh. They got hitched, and it was right after I became— an assistant engineer intern kind of guy over at the studio that he came by to check out, which was Dallas Sound Lab at the time. Probably the best studio here, one of the better studios in the Southwest. And he came by to tour the studio a couple of times and just said he was moving here and he was looking for a place to record and it went from there. Was that your uh, first uh, studio gig? Mm, yeah, that was my first real gig as being, you know... No, nobody was there was on staff, so to speak. We were all freelancers, but we we you could have called us on staff. We just weren't getting benefits, you know. Mm. So uh, yeah, it was my first studio gig ever. It was back in nineteen ninety one, October of ninety one, when I got on there, and uh, you know, piddled around there for a few years, and and. Then I met Pantera in October of 93, and the rest is history. You want to know what I was doing in 1991? You were probably in, like, grade school. Yeah, nothing cool. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to metal. All right. In, like, sixth or seventh grade around that time, so uh -huh. not much cool. That's but, about when I got corrupted. My older brother corrupted me, so, you know, we can thank him. So, like, how did you literally land that as your first gig? Like, um, It wasn't it wasn't my first gig ever there. Man, I mean, my first gig ever there there was making coffee you know okay. it was like can i can i intern here and they go yeah there's the coffee maker we like you know <laughs> and, and so i mean that was literally it you know there's the trash can there's the coffee maker there's the coffee machine be quiet you know that was that was the gig <laughs> i love that that's yeah 
How did you even land that one? I had done a little apprenticeship type thing. There were no real formal audio schools at that point in time here in the Dallas area. I had moved up here from uh, a a small West Texas uh, city called San Angelo where I was pretty much born and raised and and, uh, moved out of there when I was 18, couldn't get out of there fast enough and uh, just wanted to come seek my fame and fortune here and, and, you know, hated college. It wasn't for me. I was making good grades, but it just wasn't for me. And me and my dad sat down and he was, I got the the music bug from him. He's a, a singer, songwriter guy uh, for my whole life. So music was always a big part of my life. And he just asked me, what do you want to really do? And I said, I want to do something in music. And I was piddling around with a guitar, messing around with it, and, and knew that I didn't want to be a musician for a living because I saw what that took out of my dad and and how that how hard that was and he said well shit you're always messing around with tinkering with gadgets and your amp and stuff why don't you be a recording engineer and it was like a light bulb went off it never occurred to me uh and it was just one of those defining moments of your life and so he hooked me up with a local guy a local legend named phil york who did Willie Nelson's Redheaded Stranger album. He worked with Robert Duvall on the Tender Mercies soundtrack. Wow. Uh, a really, a really, really good guy. He ha- passed away a, a couple of years ago, but he was so nice and so cool. I mean, he would like, he would send in ballots, uh, Grammy nomination ballots for local level unsigned musicians that had never done anything just to boost their confidence he was that kind of guy oh wow and uh you know whenever i get into a situation where i'm i'm conflicted i always think oh my god what would he do and try to help me through it but uh that you know i went and apprenticed with him for about six months and then he said uh here you know i got a local uh blues band that needs a live sound engineer here you go and threw me in the deep end of the pool and and i I quickly found out that i did not like live sound and that i always wanted to be a studio guy and uh so i I messed with that for a few years and then i and a couple of years and then i actually got the balls to go to dallas sound lab and ask for an internship yeah i don't like live sound either i i had to do it one time and i was like Man, you know, I really appreciate the the rewind button. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A do-over for sure. Man, I, I hate it too. I, I got put on the spot once when I just went to watch a friend's band, and uh, he just cornered me. It was like, we're not touring with a sound guy. Run sound for us. It's oh, like, no. Well, I don't really do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got lucky, and I did it for a couple of years, and I got pretty damn good at it, but I, I never liked it. I never liked the spontaneity of it or anything, and, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an acquired skill for sure, and I have much respect to my, my live sound brethren out there. I know a lot of the top sound engineers, and they are they're superheroes in my eyes. It's a, It takes a different... Uh, mentality and temperament i think totally totally it takes uh it's like a it's like part you got to have that part sound guy thing where you're you you know you're laid back you work well with people but you ought to, you also got to have a real good size fuck you attitude as well because when people get up in your shit and, and on the road you know i, mean, I, I spent oh, ton, yeah. tons of time on the road i toured the world with pantera and damage plan and hell yeah as well as a as a bass ca- uh, bass tech and a guitar tech and yeah man people you gotta you gotta stand up for yourself on the road or you'll get rolled over so definitely uh a strong to survive kind oh, yeah. of situation definitely that's where i kind of grew a pair so to speak was you know i was this timid little 
woodland creature when when the Pantera boys found me, sort of. <laughs> so how did they find you? Well, I mean, they came to the Dallas Sound Lab to finish up Far Beyond Driven in 93, October of 93. I had uh, answered a phone call that uh, from Terry Date there at the studio, and he wanted to know what kind of gear we had, knew we had an SSL, and... Uh, just you know, I rap, rattled off the gear list, and he booked. Uh, gosh, what? However long that first sessions, those sessions where it was like the first two months, he booked like two months to finish up the album, to finish recording and and mix it there, and just like that, yeah, just like that. And it was it was one an, again another one of those defining moments in your life. And me and every one of those dudes just hit it off. We were almost the same age i was like a year younger than all the rest of them just hit it off i I had always been a fan even through their glam metal days i'd worn out several of their earlier cassettes uh from when living i'm living in my hometown and going to school there and and uh you know they were always the band to go check out if i was you were in dallas you know it was pantera and uh I didn't really ever get to meet them or do anything with them until that time, until 93. And then uh, they needed a bass tech after we were done with the album. I was assistant engineer on the album. Uh, the second engineer behind Terry Date was a guy that I absolutely love to death. He's one of my mentors. His name is Tim Kimsey. He's since gone on to win Grammy, and, and he's head of a studio out in Cisco, Texas. That's like a $10 million facility. And, uh, you know, uh, just, I, they needed a bass tech and I would have been an idiot to say no. I mean, what is the other answer besides yes? Uh, There isn't (laughs) one. There really isn't one. And, and I, I was just talking to my wife while ago before we fired up here and I was like, you know, I was talking about how much I respect what you guys are doing and how many things that I see that you have your hands in. And it's, it's incredible to me to see how busy you guys are. And I'm like, I'm 46 now. And I like, I could not do what you guys do. I could not be that busy without there being some kind of consequence, you know, whether it be exhaustion or a mental institution or whatever. (laughs) And, and I, uh, I gotta tell you, man, I risk, I respect seeing what you guys got your fingers in and, and uh, it's awesome to me. And so, and she was like, well, you know, it's a different kind of, you got a different kind of ambition or whatever. And I said, yeah, when I was their age, I was, it was all about, Hey, let's go get fucked up and hang out with rock stars around the world. You know, that's where I was at. Cause literally I hung up being a recording engineer for a couple of years while I went on tour and did silly stuff. You know? Yeah, but I feel I kind of feel like getting the well. First of all, you're working, but also I kind of feel like that's one of those uh, will only happen once in the history of Earth type Without of a doubt. situations. The stories alone are worth it. Oh yeah. yeah, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I w- I would do it again in a heartbeat. And and yeah, I have my little moments of remorse when I'm sitting here trying to figure out how to lock a machine up to Pro Tools, or I'm sitting here going, "What the fuck is dither?" You know, <laughs> you know. And there was there were things I missed out on uh, during the birth of, of digital. And uh, you know, I'm I'm sinking my teeth back into it nowadays. But uh, but yeah, there's times when I'm just like, 
I have no idea what some of you some of you younger guys are talking about. But I I, I try to get in there and get my hands dirty and and everything. But I yeah, the stories and the the friendships and the brotherhood and family that came out of all of this, I would would never trade for anything. Uh, you should see one of us try to run a tape machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was gonna ask that. I was like, you know, did you you working in that time period? You, obviously you. You know, came from an analog point of view in a tape world. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's kind of uh, interesting to me because I, I don't know anything about that world. And I'm like, I've always been 100% in the box. And I know Joel's a little bit of a hybrid and, and has some outboard gear. Same with AL. But uh, it's uh, it's really cool to like to know that metal did have a period where it was done like organically, I oh, guess you yeah. could say. <laughs> yeah, no one do, man. Flying by the seat of your pants, you had to know your shit to do it. Yeah. And even then, if you didn't know your shit, you had a badass engineer to bail you out. And there are times when I long for those days and I miss the smell of tape oxide in the control room. But when I'm sitting here and I'm working with Pro Tools and there's no rewind time, there's no editing with a razor blade. God. <laughs> there, it's, it, I, I sit here and I smile and I go, yeah, I like this better. You know, this Maybe is a little more convenient. we can make convenient. a plug-in that smells like tape oxide. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> Shoots out of the portholes of the monitors. There you go. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I know, I mean, clearly everybody knows that the Pantera dudes are fantastic musicians, but so are the merciful fake guys. So uh-huh. did that, did working with those caliber of players in the studio spoil you at all totally absolutely well see when your first studio gig ever straight almost straight out of audio if you want to call it audio school loose definition of that straight out of that apprenticeship going to the best studio in town and you walk in the door and within your first week there you've got people like the Smothers Brothers walking up and down the hall and Troy Aikman from the Dallas Cowboys and Milton Burles in town to do a, a voiceover and and you know this was a corporate studio as well during the day so they're doing corporate shit during the day and, and then the rock and rollers come in at night and you're working with either guys like that and you're if you're doing a jingle during the day you're working with the best on-call musicians uh, in town first call musicians back when there used to be a thing called studio musicians and yep. uh they would come in and knock out 10 decker hot dog commercial versions of something in about an hour and a half and then you know yeah you get real spoiled and some of the some of the first call musicians are guys like andy timmons and you're just you're just sitting there and you're you're you become so jaded to what the what the rest of the recording world is doing you know they're struggling through billy bob and the dingalings down the street here and they can't play their instruments and they don't know what a tuner is and and yeah this was a really really professional environment a really professional world-class studio and so yeah did you ever record david harbour on bass i know david uh yeah i had him up in my studio a few years ago to, uh-huh. a, to do a guest bass thing on a bass solo album and man uh-huh. he was super fun to hang out with uh, just he's great the he's most great. ridiculous bass player i was no, just like he, holy oh, shit have you ever seen him play piano yeah he's insane 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 
and yeah, I mean, he's a, and he's a cool laid back cat to go just hang out and have a beer with. I don't, I don't drink anymore. The Pantera boys ruined me, but you know, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it, he was always cool when he would come over and do sessions with a local guitar phenom here named Michael Harris. And, uh, uh, and I used to be a shrapnel listener. There you go. Shred guitar nerd. Yep. So yep exactly. Harris, absolutely. Yeah. He used to, I used to live in a little, uh, in a, not a little city, but a city just south of where I live now called Louisville and we lived like a mile from each other and this guy's a world-class guitar player and he just lives right up the street it's, it's funny small world I did a lot of stuff with Michael too over the last 20 years so I was wondering if uh there's I mean I feel like there is but I kind of want to hear your take on it like do you feel like there's a big difference in the bar for how good musicians are now versus like what they think is good versus what was considered good in the Pantera days? I think good's a relative term, honestly. I think that it's still there. I think the bar is still there. I think people are still reaching it and exceeding it. Now, on the other hand, the this all this digital stuff has made a lot of other musicians lazy as fuck. Yep. Agreed. And yeah. not worth a shit and they can't play what they write and they're lazy and I just hate that. I hate that mentality of, oh, well, you got a Pro Tools rig in front of you, don't you? That I hate and I will fucking kick somebody out of my studio for that shit. Hell yeah, so I love awesome. it. Yeah, you're my hero. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I agree with you. There's definitely still great players. I just think it's the shitty players have such a voice now. Oh, yeah, that, they're everywhere. That, yeah, maybe that's the difference. I think so. I really do. And, there's, and then there's social media on top of everything else where everybody can be a rock star or everybody can be just be shitty and bring mediocre way up closer to the where the the actual bar is. Yeah, it's it's funny that you said about a profession that uh, doesn't exist anymore. The studio musician game, man. I remember when I went to music school. That was I went to music school in like ninety nine or ninety eight, ninety nine, and that was like a viable profession for mm-hmm. a guitar player. Like people went to school for four years to study guitar. In hopes of becoming a studio musician. Yeah, GIT. I remember the big GIT thing in the nineties. And no, no more. That's a bad idea now. Yeah, you can't. You can't make a living just doing that. You have to be in. If you want to be a musician for hire for a living, you have to be in several bands. You have to have your own website. You have to have. You know, you got to have your your tentacles out there and everything in order just to scrape by. You know. You guys just ruined 17-year-old me's dreams. (laughs) (laughs) He'll get over it, man. (laughs) He did. (laughs) There you go. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Far Beyond Driven, if you don't mind. Sure. So you clearly bonded with the band because they asked you to go on the road. But uh, I think that that's, that's a pretty legendary record. You said that Terry Date booked two months just to finish it up? Yeah, they were they were. Most of the way through the recording process at their dad's place in Nashville, uh, Jerry Abbott. By the way, my uh, uncle lived down the street from that guy uh-huh. uh, during that time period, and he said that uh, it, he could hear he could hear that kick drum every night. <laughs> <laughs> so they were blasting it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Big twenty fours. Two of them. 
24 by 24s but but yeah they were they were right in the middle of that and then they had they decided they need a change of address they weren't I don't think they were getting along with their dad real well at that point in time and so they uprooted from Nashville there and came back down to home to finish it and we were the one of the only rooms in town with uh with an SSL that would tolerate them being there for that long. What was left to do? I'm just wondering because two yeah. months yeah. now is like a lot of time. Well, Make three albums in that time. <laughs> think about it like this. Here, Here's what was left to do. All the vocals were left to do. They had a couple of bass punch-ins and some add-ons there with like some Moog Taurus pedals. They had a uh, few rhythm guitar add-ons and punch-ins to do with Dime and pretty much all of the leads any clean guitar stuff that in fact that was the very first thing that was recorded at Dallas Sound Lab was the clean guitar on Shedding Skin I remember it vividly and um, then the mix so what the hell mic do you use on Phil and Selm though at 58 no kidding no kidding 58 (laughs) in the control room yeah that's what you're gonna get live 58 in the control room with Yamaha NS10s on 11 and him just screaming his balls off and that's how they did it on Vulgar and Far Beyond and Trend Kill. It's kind oh, of amazing shit. to me that I've a lot of dudes that are contemporaries to Phil also recorded their vocals like that. Fifty eight in the room, mm-hmm. monitors blaring, mm-hmm. and you know there's some of the vocals that we all uh, Black Album. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Testament did it too. Yep. A lot of people did it. I think even you too did it. Right. Yeah, that was a big Daniel Lanois thing to have a PA in the room and and just have everything open, right? Yeah, he's insane. I've yeah. watched a lot of his recording videos. Insane in a good way. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Can, yeah, a total genius. Totally. You can uh, phase cancel it somehow, right? Uh, I think if you're off axis is how it works. If you're off axis yeah. from uh, the monitors, because if you're just standing directly in front of them, it's going to bleed like a son of a bitch. But if you're like off to the side or a 45 degree angle, you got to find a, a sweet spot or a dead spot in the room and that's where you do it yeah that's that's how, how they did it yeah. with um, Bob Rock and, yeah. and my, uh, Black Album yeah. I remember seeing that but I think they used a large diaphragm condenser on Headfield's voice because they had like the tr- it was like a triangle set up I'd have to go back and watch the video but yeah. I swear it's an SM7B but it might be oh no but they used a 58 we're talking uh, Pantera used a 58 yeah yeah but oh, I mean it's no. you know it's a dynamic yeah uh, dynamic microphone. setup the seven B was, was the newer album, one where they shot like the uh, Saint Anger or whatever the fuck that album was. That was the one yeah. they used the fifty or seven B on. But the black album was like a condenser or something like that. If I remember correctly, I watched that video like twenty times. When I, <laughs> I, yeah, I think I've seen that video more than any movie I've ever seen. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I look at when I'm watching studio videos or or like clips of stuff like that i'm like looking at the gear i'm looking at how the mics were placed oh yeah i'm a geek yeah that's that's okay i think we we all are but i guarantee you that hetfield used a 58 at some point i know that i read that and had to yeah and it got ingrained in my head yeah i haven't heard about that being done too much recently but I think that there's something to be said, though, about how good these vocalists were. Oh, yeah. Uh, Without a doubt, a lot of control. What a lot of people, a lot of these guys don't understand in uh, 
bands that are coming up and bands that are I, I make a lot of my living from local level unsigned bands and they don't understand that even though you're screaming there's pitch involved and there's there's tonality and there's control and and yeah I get a lot of these newbies that come in and they just they blow their voice out after five minutes and it's sad <laughs> sad to watch I've totally seen that <laughs> yeah I saw a kid that couldn't even make it through the first part of a song and that was it. He was done. Yeah. They go extra hard in the studio thinking, and it's going to be so much more awesome. And it's like moron. You have to scream the whole record and you've gotten through two lines and you're already out for the next two and a half months. Like, <laughs> That's come it. On. <laughs> nah, it's uh, yeah. Those guys are, are fantastic. And again, going back to the age of analog, the age of, of you better know your shit. You better have some control over your craft because you're under the microscope and nuance counts. So so what was the stuff that you guys would spend the most time on? Would it be takes or because they were so good you would have more time to experiment with tone? Like what was what was the big I guess time eater? I don't know, man. Phil was pretty quick usually. He knew he would come in uh even from when I saw him working with Terry all the way up to where I got to sit in and uh help co-produced vocals with Dime on Reinventing the Steel, he was very quick. He had everything mapped out, all ready to go. It was all in his head. Never saw him with a notebook other than just his lyrics sheet, his handwritten lyrics, and and he had it all mapped out. Hey, I'm coming in. I'm going to do my... Uh, there's going to be a double here. There's going to be a harmony here. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was that quick, and he would knock out a vocal for a song in about an hour, hour and a half. <laughs> and and it was all done and mapped out in his head, period. And then Vinny or Dime might say, hey, can you do something here? Can you do a little something extra here? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah. And they'd just pop in and do it. And, you know, that was pretty easy, uh, easy peasy. But uh, a lot of time on, on the Pantera stuff was eaten up with guitars just because Dime was so meticulous. He was, he was aware, very hyper aware of the fact that He's the only guitar player in this band, and everything had to be asshole tight. And rhythm guitars were a big deal for him. He would sit for hours. I, I would sit with him for, god damn, <laughs> 12, 14 hours sometimes just to get a track right. So what did you guys mic up that cab with, man? Because Pantera has one of the most legendary identifiable tones you might love it you might hate it i've never been a fan but i've always respected how unique it is only dime sounded like dime and i always wondered like you know what kind of shit was actually used on those records here here we go you're gonna shit when i tell you 57 right <laughs> a 58 damn it <laughs> a 58 we tried 57s and it was always a 58 with dime and it was never a two mic setup or a two cabinet or multi this multi that it was dime's hands dime's rig and a 58 that, that that's is, great that is a testament to the fact of whenever i talk to people that ask me what do you do for this what do you do for that i I tell them it all starts with the source, and that is a case of the source being impeccable, and the source mean you know being the musician, of course. Yeah, and it has nothing to do with gear. It has nothing to do with anything other than the musician, and and that's that is that is one of the 
clearest examples of that happening because when I tell people it was just a 58 and a lot of times it was just going into an old MCI 500 console preamp which he preferred it was part of the part of his tone that he liked uh it's an old console from the 70s that a lot of country artists use and it's that was it that was the only particulars of his sound outside of his guitar rig that that he insisted upon and uh it's it's just one of those things that people are just i'll tell people and they're just like fuck you come on you're you're hiding you're hiding something and i'm like no i'm not they want to believe that uh you can purchase yes the you can <laughs> you can purchase your way yeah. into something legendary no no you cannot and and that's a huge deal with me too you cannot it's not about gear if you saw if you were ever down in the studio, the 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 Pantera studio where they did everything from Trinkill on, you would shit because it's nothing special. It's it's a fucking Mackie console. It's it's cheap ass Behringer composers that you can buy now for thirty dollars on eBay. It's it, you know it's it's. It's not the gear, it's how you use it. It's not the size of your pencil, it's how you sign your name. You know, it's it's just a it, that's where I learned all that. I I learned the most valuable lesson from them was you better eat something or you're going to be really hung over. <laughs> and and it's not the gear, it's the people, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Did he uh did he quad his rhythms or No, just two. Just two. Just two and they were like they were surgical tight, man. And and that's what we spent most of our time doing was yes, we spent a lot of time with with Vinny crafting his sound. He had a very specific sound as well, uh, a sound just as unique as Dime's guitar playing and guitar tone. And so we, we would spend a lot of time getting the drums right, and we would spend the other a lot of that time getting the guitars tight and getting them right. And then Leeds Roy's pretty fun with him because it was such a unique thing because he would always come in with some crazy idea or have have you chained together like 15 guitar pedals and it would make this god awful <laughs> horrendous noise but he would he would make it work for the song you know it would uh would that be like the same rig or would you guys set up something different for leads most of the time it would start there that would be where it would start and then maybe he would have us plug into like a mini marshall or something weird you know but it wasn't always just that rig just that that dime bolt guitar and just that setup it was never when it came to leads it was like he loved to experiment he always had something up his sleeve he always had some new gadget or something did those tend to go quickly once you got everything uh hooked up sometimes yes sometimes no i mean there was no there was no defined i have an idea and it's gonna work it was let's try this Let's, yep. let's take a toke of, off a joint. Let's do a few shots and let's see if this fucking thing flies. You know, it was it was really uh, up to the universe at that point, you know. Yeah. You, one thing that I've always thought is really cool is that there's generally no rhythm guitars going under the leads. And, uh, you know, with a lot of other bands, I would never like that because... Um, I don't know because their bass players aren't as good, but uh, <laughs> but well, you know, like whatever the it would drop out for the solo, it would just be bass and drums holding it down for most of the time. 
So I think that the uh, the bass tone, I mean, everything about it is legendary, but you can't, I feel like you can't forget the bass tone. Bass is such an important part no, no. of a metal mix. Absolutely. And, and that, again, this comes back to the fact that Pantera, first and foremost, was a live band. They were the band that you heard their album and you either loved it or you hated it. And if you loved it, you wanted to go see them live. And then the live experience blew you away that much more. And that was, you know, that was the whole part of that dime being the only guitar player in the, in the band. And well, when that lead came up, most of the time, yeah, his rhythms would drop out because that's the natural flow of things live. And then Rex had to pick up where Dime left off and, and walk around down there, and the tone had to be big enough and badass enough to, to help keep it up, you know, to help keep the song energy moving forward and flowing so that you didn't feel like everything dropped away. The days before tracks, backtrack. Right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, I went, it's it's it, it amazing to me. I went and saw a couple of the... The band headlining was not so new, but the the band uh, that was warming up for them was very new, and it was Pro Tool City, and I was just <laughs> like, "Wow!" I just, I guess that's they don't even care if you know anymore. They don't that's give a like shit. That's like the standard now. It is. Yeah. It is. Backtrack everything, and it sucks. Yeah, I hate and it. and I got a, another example of that is I got a friend uh, who was our monitor engineer for a long time for Pantera for a few tours and now he does sound for everybody and uh he uh he was having to do a show for Katy Perry on New Year's Eve and he was telling me that she has this band of just unbelievable musicians they're killer and she was out front listening to how he was going to mix the show and she kept telling him it just sounds too live can you pull the band down and push the tracks up and it eventually ended up being three quarters tracks and one quarter band and it's huh. just sad dude that's what they want to do you know it's and gonna... you know that katie barry had the best of the best totally. musicians yeah totally so you know that's just where it is matter yeah. of fact so what was it like working with terry date because terry date has done so many records that i grew up listening to and is just an absolute legend yeah i Honestly, I just can't say enough about the guy. He's, again, another one of those guys that I just was in awe of when he was on the other end of the phone. I was just blown away uh, that I was talking to Terry Date because I was already a fan. And uh, oh, and I told him so, too. <laughs> right there, on the, you know, I was like, oh, wow, Terry Date, I'm a big fan. And, you know, he's super duper humble and laid back and, and was like, oh, well, thanks. And, yeah, I got the guys. Uh, I, I think we're coming back home and just want to see what you have in the studio. But he just, that dude is, I can't explain it. He's just got ears of, of platinum and, and just knows what a mix should sound like. One of the most valuable things I learned from him was noise is your friend. Use it to your advantage. And if you have noise in a track or bleed or you know, some noise that you think you're going to get rid of and clean up, don't use it. And, and, you know, 90% of the time he's right. It works, you know? So. Was he a taskmaster? Meaning? Like very, uh, I don't mean like in a mean way. I mean, just like super demanding and very high standards. I think, uh, when you're working with guys like Pantera, the standard is always high. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we were working, 
yeah, it was, no, that's not good enough. No, that doesn't have the energy. You know, there were a lot of do-overs. There were a lot of, of this isn't right yet. I remember, I remember when we started mixing Far Beyond Driven, we mixed on it for two solid weeks. And then we came back after the Christmas break and Dime and Vinny were like, it's not right. And, and they were right. And, and so Terry and went in there and we pulled all the faders down and started ro- over from scratch on the mix. You know, that has to happen sometimes. And, but as far as him being a taskmaster or anything like that, I would, I wouldn't, I don't think so, man. I he just, he's laid back and goes with the flow and keeps the train on the tracks. And, uh, you know, that's always how I kind of viewed him as more of a, awesome. a father figure of, come on guys, we got to really, we got to work on this instead of party or we got to, uh, we got to focus or, you know, or, uh, I tried this out. What do you guys think? You know, I I always looked at him like that rather than better get in here. The record labels breathing down my neck, you know, nothing ever, ever like that, that I remember. (laughs) I can see that really ruining the vibe of the session. Totally. So yeah, we would, it was, it was always an atmosphere of fun. It was always an atmosphere of, we were always cutting up about something yeah, or they, you know, Dime was always picking on Terry or, or, you know, Terry was telling a story about whatever, working on the sound garden or whatever, you know, and just, it was, and then, yeah, we'd work for a little while and then we'd drink a few shots and it was, it was always laid back. It was never, ever hardcore. We got to get this done. We have to have this done. It was never, ever like that. I don't ever remember it being like that. Which is amazing because in reality, it was on a major label. Yeah. And you did have to get it done. I remember at one point uh, for Trinkill, Dime was uh, not happy with that outro part, that outro guitar part on uh, what song is that? Floods, where he's doing the little do 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 that part uh, mm-hmm. with the delay, and uh, he just wasn't happy with it and wasn't happy with it. And they were sitting in mastering at Sterling Sound in New York, and. <laughs> He was like, he was like, I have to redo this. I have to redo it right now. So he called down to Sam Ash and rented a a little amp and a guitar and a delay pedal. And they set him off in a, in one of the studios that wasn't being used with some headphones and a little preamp and, and, you know, to get it to DA88 tape or something like that, that they could sync up to the master. And he was sitting in there with a six pack of beer redoing this outro lead on Floods. And there was literally a record company guy standing in the doorway, tapping on his fucking watch. (laughs) Jeez. And Don was just like, look, man, if I don't get this right now because you're standing there doing this, it ain't going to get done. And then you're going to get fired. Get the fuck out of (laughs) here. So there you go. You know, that's just no matter if the if the world was coming down around them, those dudes Roy's just cool as ice, man. Well, you know, at the end of the day, the... I feel like a label needs them, would need them more than they would need a particular label because you have easily just gone anywhere. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> That's leverage, you know? Yeah, it was great that they got signed. It was great that their music got exposed to millions of people, but I feel like it would have happened anyways. Yeah, I'm sure. So when when did you stop touring? Um, I'd finally had enough on the Corn Family Values tour when Hell Yeah was out on that a few years ago on the Stampede tour. Oh, so you've been touring for a while. I on and off, on and off since 94. 
and you know the drinking and the traveling and air and I had just got to where I was just I couldn't do it anymore I just couldn't fucking do it I was I think I was done and and then even after I came home I was like I was still a little ways from my bottom, and uh, I'd finally, after that, had enough of the drinking thing. And you know, it just there gets a point in your life where you either you either stop doing the things that keep dragging you down, or you or you croak. And so, you know, made a made a decision to stop doing all that shit that made me miserable. And I gotta tell you, I. I live a life now that's that's I never could have imagined 25 years ago, you know. 25 years ago it was all about going out and partying and doing, you know, and working on albums and touring and all that, but now it's more like, you know, work out of my home studio and hang out with my kid and be conscious <laughs> and in the moment, <laughs> you know, hang out with my kid and my wife and actually pay attention to them and 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 be around for things like that and and it's That's hard in this business. It is. It is. It's a hard balance because uh there are there are trade-offs there are sacrifices and uh i see i see all the great things you guys are doing that i would at this point in my life would never have the time for i just wouldn't have the time for it and uh but but the satisfaction in all that is hey i've i got my family that i love i get to stay close to home i only travel when i have to record something like uh, i i was just in canada uh last year recording a very awesome band that uh, they're about to release their debut album and just you know that's the only time i travel anymore is when it's when it's for that you know, well, I got three kids, and I think that uh, God Almighty, how do you do it? I don't know. You just yeah, got to balance my mind. <laughs> and when you're with them, you have to be with them. You know, you got to turn off the damn phone, and it's hard. It's about balance. It really is, man. It's about balance. There, it, I, I watched that Rush thing beyond the lighted stage, and when Getty Lee said, "There is time for both." it really resonated with me. And it's like, well, maybe that's where I'm at in my life too. And I think that's where I'm at. You know, I think if I were on a, on a nonstop schedule, like I used to be on 25 years ago, I couldn't do it. I'd be divorced again and just estranged from my own kid and, and it wouldn't be good. So that, you know, that's just where I am now though. And it's, it's fucking awesome, man. I, I would, I love it, but I wouldn't trade the past for nothing, man. Oh my God. What a, what a, roller coaster so it's interesting when you're just reached that point where you're like okay enough's enough time to move on to the next thing yeah most definitely and i knew it i was in the middle of a tour and i found a guy to replace me and i was just i was so over it the the conditions that we were touring under were not fun it wasn't, you know, five-star hotels like it was with Pantera. It, it wasn't Pantera, and that's that's the re- realization that I hit. That's where I hit the wall. I was like, this is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> we're rolling cases through, you know, three inches of mud, and we're barely fitting on the back of the stage with ten other bands, you know, and Corn's the headliner, Ugh. and Ugh. it was a clusterfuck every single fucking day in the rain in the summer heat and it was like i'm 38 years old fuck you you know (laughs) that's just where my head was at plus you already did all the you probably toured the nicest just about the nicest anyone can tour totally absolutely the pantera guys always wanted us to be where they were it was a family and we stayed in the nice hotels with them 
we, you know, we didn't fly first class or Learjets or anything like that, but we still got where we where we were going, and we all went together, and and we, it was just fun, you know, and it was family, and we were treated like kings, and it wasn't like that on on Damage Plan. It wasn't like that on Hell Yeah. That was the first time I quit. Was was the the Damage Plan tour about six months before Dime got killed. And then I picked it back up again with Hell Yeah. And then I, you know, I just had enough of that. And that was it, man. That was over for me. So, but, you know, I know guys that are still touring. Guys from, uh, you know, Grady from, that used to be Dimes Guitar Tech. God, he still goes out with uh, Blondie and Incubus. That's his two main bands right now. And he still does it. And he's got three kids and a wife and, you know. Some people just find their zen on the road. They do. So when, was it tough to transition to a more regular sedentary studio lifestyle yeah. after that huge-ass party? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It took me – It's. Uh, I've been sober now for six years, and I'm just now starting to hit my stride. And it was it was I had to I had to quit everything. I had to quit the traveling and the drinking and whatever else I was doing. I had to quit, you know, because it was wrecking everything. And I was watching a a 20 year career go down the toilet. And so, yeah, it was it was tough, man, changing gears over the, the last six years. But I've come to find a little bit of serenity and a little bit of peace in the whole thing. And a lot of acceptance and you know it's i have my tough days where i'm like god damn it i wish i was out there doing that again and then i and then i think for a second no you don't you stupid idiot you know <laughs> don't don't even go there and and it's but but yeah it was tough getting settled in and and now i'm just you know i'm cruising along you know doing my own thing so and and yeah bring going from having the the recording career that I had and then going out on tour destroys it every time because, well, you're not available to go record anybody else while you're out on the road. And I had to turn down a gig with Rick Rubin because I was out with, uh, with uh, uh, Hell Yeah at one point on the first tour. Ouch. Yeah, big ouch. Or, or no, it was the second tour. And so, yeah, that was that was tough. And, and you just got to got to roll with the punches and then having to come back and reestablish your clientele, let people, you know, you know that you're not touring anymore. It takes a long time. It's like getting a, when you build a new studio and getting that established, that takes about 10 years, five to 10 years. And, and it's the same for when you're an engineer, if you leave it and you come back, you don't expect all that shit to be there. Cause it ain't the show must go on. Well, the, yeah, the now, especially with the speed yeah. at which shit happens. Oh you, man. Uh, Lightning. Yeah, you can't drop momentum at all. Nope. We've talked about this before, though, that nowadays, like, you will get dudes that get super, super successful, but there's a more, a lot more limited of a time window for which that'll happen because typically whatever trend they get successful in doesn't last that long anymore. I could see that, sure. A lot of validity in that. But I've I've noticed I've heard the same thing from lots of touring guys that do studios that it's hard to start back up when you get back from a tour. Oh yeah, the transition is is weird because neither world is reality, and neither <laughs> neither world 
it travels at the same speed, especially the studio. The studio is like watching paint dry. And when you're a touring musician and you go from everything happening at the speed of light to sitting there watching the grass grow, yeah, that's like hitting a wall. It can it can be in in a lot of guys when they come off tour that I know I know I went through this but you you go through about a depression it's it's weird it's can't be helped sometimes well just making good choices after sure. that sure absolutely <laughs> my my niece told me that last night I went over her house to get some medicine for my kid and as I was leaving you know she's like twenty years old she said make good choices and I just laughed so you know, <laughs> too too late for that kid. <laughs> So uh, we've got some questions from our audience. Absolutely. Fire away. Uh, but some of these we already kind of talked about, uh-huh. so I don't, don't want to get too repetitive here. Okay. Uh, so I'll, I'll avoid the ones that like we definitely already covered. But, uh, but here's one from Dave Watkins. I would love Sterling's thoughts on achieving great bass tones like on Pantera Records. Well, again, here we go down the road of it starts with the source. And if you got a shitty player, you're going to have shitty everything. So tone don't matter. You got to have a good musician. A good musician makes everything better. It makes your job easier. It makes everything happen. It makes things tight. But outside of that, once you have that, then, you know, God, uh, it's all about what the player's comfortable with. Uh, myself, I love P basses. I just love the sound of them. It's not my favorite in the whole wide world, but they're they're right up there. P bases, inspectors, you know, a good instrument is always is a good thing. Um, I I don't know. I, I I don't use cabinets much anymore or amps for bass. I just go direct, and I'll use a combination of maybe two different kinds of direct signals. Like I'll do a a direct signal from a DI, like a radial DI, and then I'll do another direct signal that I'll plug like straight into the front instrument input of a Ventec preamp. And then I'll have two different DIs and I don't know why it is, but they double up and they are, they're arriving at different times. And so they, they, they get thick and I like doing shit like that. And then maybe add on like a, a bass uh, distortion pedal or something like that and have three different DIs going at once. I've had a lot of success with that. So, and reamping and stuff, you know? That's great. One of the things we always talk about, and it applies to a lot of different stuff, but mixing in particular, you know, it's like get good with the basics, get good with EQ and compression and, and actual vault and faders. Damn straight. Do that first before you worry about parallel compression and exactly, exactly. And all this other stuff. So, yeah. yeah, there's no trick to it. I don't think a lot of the shit that I do is so simple. It is so, so simple. And I think that's, I guess that I may, I maybe should throw that in there before anything else. You're talking about basics and, and yeah, learn your rudimentary basic things, but keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate it because the f- creative people are the worst about complicating something overly, overly so. You know, I can complicate a ham sandwich if you if you let me. <laughs> well, I feel like the thing with uh, with like for instance that bass tone we're talking about is uh, you take Rex out of the situation and you put like an average bass player in, and then you might need to complicate it just to get it to sound decent. Yeah, absolutely. No, I I'm amen to that. You you might have to to throw some bells and whistles in there to get it to kind of come back around the corner. No, I've, I've had that happen. I agree with that. So Eric Zan asks, 
Did King Diamond ever wear corpse paint while tracking vocals? <laughs> Hell yes, I hope. Oh my God. It's funny. It's funny. We used to joke around about, dude, you should mow your lawn over here in Frisco in Texas like that. He said, I do live right across uh, across the street from a preacher. And, you know, and, you know we, he's got a great sense of humor. He's a really funny guy. And, uh, and just just one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And we always used to joke about that. And uh, no, he never came in and sang in full makeup. That's only a show thing. So sorry <laughs> to smash your dreams, man. <laughs> I always wonder that about the black metal bands. I'd really like to do a black metal record with like, you know, they come in with shields and corpse paint and all that shit. I've had that happen. <laughs> I just would be so disappointed. Now those guys are serious. Those guys are like, hey, this ain't a show. They, they live that shit. Yes, they do. Especially uh, in Europe. Oh, yeah. When I remember Vinny telling me uh, this was one of the tours of Pantera. I didn't tour constantly with them. I was I was on and off uh, over the years, but uh, one of the times I wasn't with them, they toured with... Uh, I believe it was uh, Celtic Frost or something like that. I think. <laughs> yep. and, oh shit! And, now we're talking. And I think I think that was the band, and and the the drummer's name was Frost. Is oh, that right? Isn't that that's Satiricon? Satiricon, Satiricon. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm not a death metal guy, so I don't know much about the the subgenre. But Vinny always used to call the dude Frosty, and he <laughs> he would. He would say, my name is not Frosty, it is Frost. And he was really serious about it. And and they used to just catch a nut on the dude totally. And, and he just took everything so serious and never cracked a smile. And like they were in, the, in Spain and they were at a beach and it was like 90 degrees outside. And this dude was out on the beach with his fucking arm gauntlets on and everything and it was just i don't get it you gotta but be hey, grim on the beach you gotta you gotta i guess so uh, you know that's just that's one of the stories from the road but uh but yeah man just uh those guys are serious but now king when he came in to sing it was a real simple setup he usually liked this uh at least back when i was working with him he liked this uh audio technica 4050 mic it really complimented his voice uh, everything I'd ever did w- with him was on that mic, and he would sit out there back when he smoked. Uh, he would sit out there with a couple of packs of those Prince cigarettes from Denmark that he had imported from Denmark, and a whole buttload of Fisherman Friends cough drops and a pot of coffee. And he would sit out there and sing until literally until his throat would bleed sometimes. Wow. And here's another cool story about King Diamond. This happened to me twice when I was tracking vocals with him on two different albums. Uh, We did Voodoo and Dead Again back-to-back. We did King Diamond Voodoo, then Merciful Fate back-to-back with no break. And during the tracking of vocals on both albums, at one time, he was doubling a vocal, and he sang it so perfectly that it was out of phase with itself, and it canceled itself. Holy shit. This happened twice. That's how precise that dude was. Jesus. In the studio. Still is. Still <laughs> wow. is. But you would, you would, you, it would go away in, in the middle of the phrase, and you'd be like, what the fuck happened? And you thought like there was something wrong with the console or something, and so you'd solo it up. No, it's there. And then you'd solo up the double, and no, it's there. And you'd solo them up together. They would cancel. I had that happen to me once in my entire career. It was only on one word and it was like a scream or something like that. And I uh-huh. remember that specifically 
And it is the trippiest thing ever. Yep. And this happened twice with him. That's how precise that dude always was and how much of a perfectionist he is, which is a good thing. I've had something similar happen twice with uh, DIs. Yeah, that, where, I was going to say. Yeah, where thing. they go to mono when it's just yeah. so uh-huh. tight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah, man. But that was not from editing. Like the first time it happened was... Uh, was the dude from Arsis, which is one of the best guitar players I've ever worked with. He was so tight that uh, the riff went to mono at one point for like a few notes, and the same thing happened. It was like solo th- the right, solo left. What the fuck's going on? Wow. And they noticed that they're exactly the same. That is killer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it happens. Twilight Zone shit. Yeah, totally. So here's one that we got to ask even though we kind of talked about it earlier but like it's just needs to be asked is uh phil is asking phil Puskota, saying how sick was it getting to track dimebag dude it was it was amazing it was always uh a lot of times uh goosebumps you know more of those working with that dude than almost anybody else and just he was amazing and and he would sit when he was tracking rhythms you know i would i would sit off to the side and he would you know kind of produce his he would police his own playing and produce his own rhythms and uh we would be punching in one two note pieces where it was just a little bit off and he would tighten it up and you know almost to the point of going to mono uh, like you were talking about and and uh it was badass man the dude was he was amazing he was he was his instrument and him were one when he was when he was jamming like that when he was in the zone and uh it was just uh i don't know there's not many other things i could say about it other than yeah it was fucking sick man uh (laughs) it's it's great of course something you just said is interesting uh we've talked about it a few times already on the podcast but like uh this is like a great 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 example which is that uh sometimes the best thing a producer engineer can do is know when to get the fuck out of the way oh yeah oh yeah well that's yeah let me tell you guys that's my style I, I all the way because i'm not a control freak i'm not a guy that comes in and says okay here's how we're gonna do shit I can't stand that, and I know guys like that, and it it bugs me to see a band's identity basically re- yanked out from under them because the engine the the producer wants to get his take on the album rather than theirs, and that's one of my biggest things with bands when I go to work with them. I say I don't when we get done with this album, I don't want you to put it on and hear me. I want you to hear you. I want the people to hear what you sound like. And I want to be as transparent as the glass between you and me when we're in the studio. And that's it. I think that that uh, you really need to work with great bands to, uh, to be able to hold true to that, I feel like. At least, you know, the problem that I've had with that at times, even though I agree with it 100%, is that sometimes you get bands that uh, don't want to find their own sound they want somebody else's sound or they're not good enough to have their own sound oh yeah i run into that a lot too and that's where for me at least anyways there's still a definable line of doing something with somebody and doing doing something for somebody and sometimes the sad part is you just have to do it for them and, and have to show them literally hold their hand and show them hey this is how you do this and this is how we're gonna get through the next eight hours with each other without killing each other you know and and you know and yeah some people don't have an identity and you gotta you gotta 
coax them to, into it or you got a, you got a, something out of them that they didn't even know they had. And that's, that's one of the things I love about this job is showing people shit they had no idea was inside them. And, and that's, that's priceless to me. That's worth more than anything. Cause I, I've, I've done that so many times just getting to work with somebody and, and go, well, what if you tried this? And they did it and they were like, holy cow, I didn't even know I could do that. And, and that's awesome. I love that shit. You know, I can say from a musician's perspective, cause I've been on the musician side of it. I've gotten to work with a couple really great producers and, uh, that's totally real that a great producer will pull stuff out of you that you didn't know you were capable of or that you wouldn't be able to pull out of yourself that's totally real yeah no it's it's a great thing and and i tell people all the time they again this goes back to the gear thing and people asking what kind of console do you use what kind of mic do you use what kind of what version of pro tools you run in and i'm like none of that shit matters and honestly if you don't have good people skills and you can't talk to somebody and you can't get to know them fucking hang it up walk away because this job is not for you because 95 percent of this job is mental it's about relating to people it's about being prepared when you walk into a studio it's about getting over whatever your hang-ups are and leaving them outside the studio and you and you're dirty laundry or your baggage or whatever you're pulling in there with you fucking leave it outside and and talk to people open up get to know them you know that's that's where i learned that's that's how i learned everything but was by watching people when they told me to there's the coffee maker there's the trash can sit down and be quiet and watch you know well people don't like hanging out with you they're certainly not going to sign on for spending eight to 14 hours a day every day with you no shit and you're gonna burn out both of you are gonna burn out real quick and and you're all gonna be uncomfortable and it's gonna you're gonna hear it you're gonna hear it in the music so one thing that we always ask our guests but uh that uh i'd like to ask you is uh you had um one piece of advice or uh just something what would you say to engineers that are just now trying to come up and get into the game like what would be a piece of advice that you would extend to them well it used to be get a lawyer that was my number one (laughs) advice because i don't i'm not big on the business and i don't know the business like a lot of guys do and that was one of my fatal mistakes to in the beginning was you know i never had anybody in my corner legally to explain the business part to me and i lost out on a lot of good shit i got ripped off We've all got stories like that, but nowadays it's just educate yourself, man. There's so many tools at your disposal. Yeah, the inter- the internet's great. I'm watching YouTube videos all the time on how to mix uh, things and, and what, what di- people do differently than I do and, and try to get out of my comfort zone and just, just, you know, learn the business, learn what's going on, learn digital marketing, learn internet, you know. That's the key to all of this shit. If you want to succeed in the business part of it and be able to pay your bills, learn learn the business. Or all of this, you'll be doing in a very, very poor fashion, you know? We encourage people to take the business side of it as seriously as the music side of it. Absolutely. And I didn't for so long. I was so busy partying. I didn't care. I didn't give a shit that I was getting ripped off on, on things and, you know, whatever. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
it's a it's a balanced thing too. That's that's kind of why I like being in business with Joey and Joel. You guys are uh, you guys are your priorities are in the right place. They only embezzle a little. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to party if that helps. <laughs> There's no time for it, but someday. Ah, <laughs> uh, man, I hear you. That's good. It's good to find good people too. You have to. Yeah, I had the fortune of being surrounded by people who are worth. Lots and lots of money uh, telling me, the, you know, what to do. And um, yeah, Craig Erickson, for one, and uh, he just sold his record label for $20 million, So, Hey, good for him. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with your advice. And um, I just want to say, you know, it's been a blast to have you on here. And, th- and thanks for sharing your stories. Hope to have you back sometime. Oh, for sure. I, would, I would love to do it, man. I, like I said, man, I really... I, I watch what you guys are doing in the social media and some of the things that you're connected with and I see how you're how you do things and stuff again I, I don't know that I'd have the time or energy for it now but it's really intriguing to watch uh, guys like yourselves and you know you're you're actually changing the game you're part of watching you're part of uh, what I like to look at is like a I don't know, just a transitioning or, or the next metamor- generation of metamor- audio. Yeah. Next generation metamorphosis. Next generation's coming up, whether we like it or not. Exactly. So. Exactly. Like, and Dime always used to say, roll with it or get rolled over. And you know, I'm going to roll with it. I like what you guys are doing. And, and Thanks. you guys are actually, you know, like Joey, you you make plugins. I have a couple of them and they're fucking awesome. And, and, Thank and you. Al, you have your drum package and, and, you know, Thanks. that's, that's great, man. That's killer that you're doing stuff like that. And, and you have to stay in in that that front edge of things or you're gonna get rolled over and so good for y'all man thank i'd say i'm i'm honored to to that you guys asked me to come be on this thing so thank you we're honored to have you on here well thanks so much sterling it was an awesome conversation and super interesting and really a trip for me down nostalgia road just remembering all of the great things that I came up listening to and hearing the stories behind them is pretty awesome. Ah, uh, you're welcome, man. Anytime. And yeah, you guys want to have me back, I'd be thrilled. Awesome. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Drumforge. Drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike. Founded on the idea that great drum sound should be obtainable for everyone. We focus on your originality. Drumforge, it's your sound. Go to drumforge.com for more info. To ask us questions, Make suggestions and interact. Visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.